Hello, and welcome back to the Shadow Work Library. Today we are talking about, well, part of it is about anxiety. What is the purpose of anxiety? Is there an evolutionary purpose to it? We all kind of feel it sometimes, so what is it even? Well, what if what we experience as anxiety is actually creativity ready to be transmuted into form and story? And that's where my next guest comes in to help us out with. His name is Will Cady. He's the global brand ambassador for Reddit. He's also a mystic and a marketer and a maker and magnificent and all the M words. Will is another musician that I've met along my travels that really made a lot of life make sense for me with one of his songs, just like Nako, who came on earlier, came to me in a psychedelic experience. And so, God, I love having this podcast because it gives me a reason to connect with these people. So the way Will explains creativity and the role that it plays in our culture is fantastic. He has a new book coming out, I think later this year. So if you're listening to this now, we're in August of 2023. You won't be able to read it just yet, but he has pre-sales going on and I'll link to that in the show notes. And along with that, Will and I are partnering up to be part of a panel in South by Southwest, which will be next year on the role of creativity or the role of psychedelics in the creative process, along with Rick Alexander, who is also on the show. So what would be awesome is if you could vote on our panel. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Part of the selection process depends on voting, so that'd be super helpful. And I'll also link to his other panel or other presentation where you can vote on that. And I don't know the title of that. Let me actually look it up. All right, yeah, it's called Creativity Unleashed, How to Turn Big Anxiety into Big Ideas. So yeah, let's just dive right into this episode. Enjoy this podcast with Will Katie. I met you eight years ago through your music. Didn't meet you, but I felt like I met you. And my friend was bringing me into a mushroom ceremony. It was my very first one. It was my inaugural experience in plant medicines. And he put together this playlist for me. And yours was the song that like did it. You know that song when you're in ceremony, you're like, this makes mm. everything make sense. And it was what fills the gap. And I just have to start by thanking you for that song. Thank you for the message that you sent me about that. I really had to sit with that for a bit. And I think that like you had mentioned that you went on to use that song in the moment of catharsis and different retreats that you were leading. And that was really powerful for me to read. Any artist that creates anything, that's it. That's the why. And it just, it was just like this like torpedo that you sent through the internet that just like hit me and it was just like a love bomb. And I just had to like sit down and fully appreciate what was coming my way in that message and go back to the version of myself that had made that song so long ago mm. and tell him that he was seen and heard. It's really special. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you for coming on and for saying that. What version of you were you when you created that song? Where were you in the world? What were you up to? That was 2012 me. There were a lot of versions of me that went into that song. It evolved actually like lyrically, thematically as it came along. But I was living in Boston at the time and I it was a creative and spiritual high point for me. And I was really pulling back the veil on a lot of elements of the human experience. And as I understand it, that's what 2012 was for a lot of people. Wow. So 
it was this, this record that I put out called the Awake EP, Extended Play, just like a short sampling. And on the cover of it, I had this photo of my hand where I was writing in Sharpie marker the word awake every day because I was very intensely involved in my lucid dreaming practice. And that was my reality check. I would see the word awake on my fingers and then I would try to push my finger through my palm. And that was a way to try to see if I was dreaming or not. And looking at your hands is an important practice for that. And then like doing things that you're basically like physically not able to do is a good signal that you're dreaming. And so in those dreams, I was really going deep in terms of discovering consciousness, discovering spirit and all of that. And it was very important for me to channel that into my music. I'd been part of a pop rock band for a while. And a lot of my own songs were largely like guys singing about girls. And I was ready to evolve to a bigger catharsis in art and music that came from having a sit with the Zen master that taught my father, where he asked me a series of questions about who I am. And when I said, I'm a musician, he said, what do you write about? I was like, I don't know, like girls and stuff. And he's like, that's what you write about. I was like, that's what I know. And he was like, do you? And <laughs> he really challenged me. And then he just looked me dead in the eyes. And he was like, if you're going to make art, it should seek to express the truth. And he was a very important figure for me. He was my dad's teacher when my dad went through Renzai Zen initiation to become a priest. And when my dad passed away, I was in this deep place that I wouldn't call a dark place, but I was wounded and I was open and I was exploring. And that song, which is very much about dreaming and what the truth of our reality is, was the expansiveness that I found that healed me. And, and I find that a lot of healing comes from finding that expansiveness where the sense of restriction and challenge and problems that you have all of a sudden gets contextualized in something much larger. And in that song, it was this idea of life is but a dream. I was speaking with somebody today who's also a huge fan of your song and you. And he wanted me to ask you, what does fill the gap? Yeah. Okay. So go, we'll go a little <laughs> song exploder for a moment here. So like parallel to that practice of my, my dream practice and my kind of like meditations and spiritual work, I was doing a lot of reading too. And so I was really diving deep into Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and the Tao Te Ching at around that time. So I was studying this concept of the Tao, which is central to Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance as well. He kind of refers to it as this idea of quality. And I, I had a version of what fills the gap that was lyrically very different. And I just had grown past it. And I was sitting on a hilltop in Vermont overlooking Lake Champlain. And I had those two books, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and the Tao Te Ching, and my notebook and my guitar and a little tennis ball where I was playing fetch with my dog. And I was just going around this little circle of just like, I'll, it was like productive procrastination is the idea. And I was just going from one thing to the next. And as I was doing that, in the distance, a thunderstorm started to form over Lake Champlain. And I saw a lightning flash. And then it took about four seconds before I heard it. 
And that connected with what I was reading in the Tao in terms of being the depth of the truth of reality and that it occurs in a place where no matter how precise your sensitivity is, there is always a gap between when something happens and when you perceive it. It has to travel through your nervous system. And I saw the parallel between that truth and the truth of the thunderstorm. And I put that in the lyrics. Wow. Good job. Period. Perception is selection. So I'm the worst at segues, but this one's great. And I shouldn't have said this. I just should have <laughs> done the segue. But whatever. I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. Your first book, if I understand this correctly, right? Which is, yeah. Is this your first book? Yeah, which is surprising yeah. because you speak like a man that's written many books. It's called The Which Way is North? A Creative Compass for Makers, Marketers, and Mystics. I'm particularly excited for this because I am all three of those things in equal parts. And up until fairly recently, I felt like that was a strange combination. I felt like the marketer side of me, the one that loves business, the one that actually felt like she was made for it. I do it very easily. I get really excited about it. That's a kind of person, right? It's a mm -hmm. dominant sort of trait for a lot of people. And then this archetype of the mystic being the one that, yeah, the dreamer, the one that lives in the fogginess of what might be the ungraspable and the unknowable. That's like a different kind of thing. And then the maker, the one that, that makes it happen, does little things just for the fun of it, right? Just for the mm -hmm. pleasure of maybe having somebody else enjoy it as well. So for you to create a book that encompasses all of these things, are they different archetypes that you're referring to? Or is this one archetype of a person or one archetype that is actually, yeah, like we're out there. That is the dominant trait, this marketer, maker, mystic kind of archetype. Yeah. Through the process, I arrived at an understanding that the mystic sees, the maker makes, the marketer shares. The mystic has purpose, the maker has passion, and the marketer has pride, right? And they're all multi-hyphenates in the process of becoming one thing. And so I hope that this book is coming at a time where saying maker, marketer, and mystic is no longer, it no longer becomes necessary and that we can just say creator afterwards with a very expansive and inclusive and profound definition of what a creator is. So I feel you when I began writing this book, my identity as a mystic and my identity as a marketer were embarrassments to each other. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Well and that's changed in this project has lasted about three years since uh, the moment that I began writing it. I would say the moment I began to triangulate this nexus point between these identities was when I visited the Oracle at Delphi in Greece, and this is in the book. But I was at a marketing conference and it was in Marathon, Greece, and it was a bunch of different sort of like high level marketing executives from all over the world talking about brand purpose, which is a theme that's still in the industry today. And just like, how do we make sure that our companies are doing good in the world? And it, it was an earnest conversation. There's a lot of ways to roll your eyes or laugh at it, but there's not a lot of clear paths for people that are deep in marketing to figure that out. And I could sense that the answers to those, some of those, that confusion comes from 
spirituality, honestly. And mm. I'm in that space as a creative and creativity is spirituality and drag. You know, it's like you're bringing these human parts to bear in a way that has to wear the ornamentation of what industry will accept. So I was feeling these tensions in that moment. And so we go, there was a group of us that went to, we hopped in a van and we went to Delphi. And it was so funny because I had a friend earlier before I went on that trip that had just gotten back from Delphi and he said, you need to go. You absolutely need to go. And I was just standing there at a bar. Somebody came up to me and they're like, hey, we're going to Delphi tomorrow. You want to come? And I was like, yeah, I think I do. <laughs> I think I think the answer to that is is yes. And so it was- Did I, you do your lucid dreaming hope first? <laughs> Just realize well, uh, this feels like <laughs> I, I don't do that anymore because what's the difference? Oh God. <laughs> um, yeah. And I work at Reddit and I worked at Reddit at the time. And these the people that we went on the trip on, they were all from like social media platforms and internet platforms. And we go to Delphi and we're learning about what it meant in the Greek world, in the Peloponnesian world. And it was like the UN crossed with the Vatican, crossed with Las Vegas. Like oh. all of these things at once, because there were these three, there's a priesthood of three women that sat on a stool in the sanctum and they were channeling something beyond the here and now. And they were messaging the people that would line up to ask a question in the same way that we ask Google, in the same way that we ask Reddit, something that we need to know. And the history of it, I won't get into, but it's almost like it was like the nuclear technology of the Greek sort of empire. Like it helped them win wars. It helped them develop their democracy. It helped them develop the concept of currency, the concept of history, all of these things. And so we're walking through the ruins of this and seeing this and in the walls, in the line that would snake around the mountain leading up to it were all of these etchings where people were sharing news from their town that they had come from. And so there was this whole ecosystem of merchants and information that had formed around it. And all of us were like, oh my God, this is the same thing that we, this is like what we work for. We're just like on the internet's version of the etchings on this wall. So it really struck me as a lesson on the relationship between mysticism and marketing that there is at the center of what people gather around this hurricane of empire, the Western world has created the Western world. At the center of it is a silent room with a woman on a stool in a state of catharsis, channeling something. And in Greek culture, like we have the professors, we have the athletes, we have the lawyers, we have the politicians. And I began to wonder where are the oracles? Why did we cast that vocation aside? in the construction of our modern world. And that's what I think is coming back is I think that humanity and nature wants that role to come back. And people are looking for the language and the words for it. And for better and for worse, the people that are sitting in that seat right now that are responsible for managing meaning and answering questions are marketers and people that work in media. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. So that was a part of a conference that you went to. Was this is clearly like a side? This is a side venture, yeah. Side and it venture. was, okay. yeah. So 
it's really interesting that we're having this conversation. I actually was remembering our timeline, our, our very short timeline of communication. And I remember when I wanted to reach out to you, I looked you up and then you had just started working at Reddit. And how did you get started in Reddit? You were the Carmel, yeah. did you start there? That's the other thing, right? There is a connection point between my song, What Fills the Gap, and this book, Which Way is North? And it is that I was deeply in student loan debt <laughs> because Berkeley College of Music is a great school and an expensive school. And it put me on this path where music was not viable because I also released it in like 2013. And as far as like the options for musicians to really make a reasonable living, like this is before influencers. This is really right at the early phases of YouTube and whatnot. And I was like learning how to go viral and be a what we would call a creator today, but that word didn't exist and that career didn't exist back then. So I ended up just trying to get any job that I could, any job. And that path took me basically down marketing. And I understood Reddit and FARC uh, and YouTube and Twitter. I just understood these emergent social platforms because I, I was a freshman in college in 2004 in Boston. And so that was when Facebook began. It was only Boston universities in 2004. You had to have a college email address to access them. I was there when it happened and I had my band and I was using Facebook to promote my band and I was using Twitter to promote my band. I was using all of these things. So there was an innate playbook that I had always been in the right place in the right time for. And I was working at some companies around Boston, but I just, there, there just wasn't a lot of opportunity for me there to make enough money to survive. I was paying like $800 a month in loans before even rent and food and all that making 35, 40 grand a year it just didn't add up. So I eventually went to Los Angeles, started working for a music magazine, Spin Magazine, and the company that they that owned them. And the short version of the story from there is having long understood Reddit, when they started to, in earnest, build the business, I was one of the few people that was crazy enough to join because I had understood from firsthand experience what the power of the platform was, because that's how you found what fills the gap, what fills the gap front paged on Reddit like 12 years ago. And I still, I get like 60,000 listens a month on that song and I haven't done anything to promote it. It was because of, it reached people in such a massive way. So started working at Reddit in 2016 and a lot of the lessons that I had learned in terms of being a maker a creative, an artist on the platform ended up being some of the foundational plays in the playbook for the creative strategy team called Karma Lab, which is how we interface with marketers. I love it. You and I have so many through lines in our story. 2016 was the time when I was judging hardcore my marketing past. It was a point where I felt like I couldn't do that anymore because it was too structured. It was too based on sales. It was too, too, too something. And like my North node is Pisces, right? In the fifth house, it's all about creation and spirituality. And like, I have to get this journey started at some point, girl. Can't yeah. just be like working in the rat race forever. And so when I discovered that you had just started at Reddit and I was, I remember having this judgment, which was clearly a judgment of myself. Oh, maybe this guy isn't who I thought he was. He can't be a marketer. Please don't be a marketer. <laughs> yeah. 
But then as I followed your journey, because I'm a stalker, you like really honing in on culture. And one of the things, the only thing that kept me, kept marketing sacred for me throughout this whole thing has been culture. And it was my journey to Boston actually for a HubSpot convention in like 2012 Wow! where they did their, I think it was Darmesh, who's, who was the CTO of HubSpot mm-hmm. at the time. He might still be. He presented his culture code for the first time and it just blew my mind. It was the first time I understood company culture to be something more than integrity, loyalty, and determination or whatever that is written on the wall in the hallway coming from a corporate stint company culture was just you show up to work early and you do what you're told and that's culture, right? But when I heard him give this talk, something clicked in me and I don't know if he had said this purposefully or if I was hearing something else that was not even being said in the room, but just downloading it, that culture can be, is is everything. And that's what set me on this path of understanding that marketing is the most powerful tool one of the most powerful tools I have. Don't cast it aside out of your own judgments. And so as we move into, as I moved into this awareness of my creativity and embracing it for something that wasn't needing to be productive, at least not at the time, but more exploratory and not placing judgments on that, I came across a lot of anxiety. And you have been known to say that what is it? Anxiety is creativity ready to be transmuted into form and story. And so when I heard you say that, it's like, that also really clicked for me. I've heard a lot of descriptions of what anxiety is because so many people have it. So if we subscribe to that, that also implies that all of these people are being called to some form of creativity, which I think is really cool. So I would love for you to expand on that a bit. Yeah. It's really helpful for me to hear you describe your encounter of how I've been in the world because that is validation of an anxiety that I would carry in my head of, I put so much spirit into my art and then I go into marketing. I'm like, how are people going to feel when they see that? So that's like a confirmation of, yeah, that is how it presents. That is, I think, an important place to start in the anxiety conversation because there is... You mentioned astrology briefly. There's a book, Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas that I read that talks about a couple of different arcs that we have in our life. There's a lot of, in like pop astrology, there's the idea of the Saturn return, right? When you turn like 27, 28, and you revisit the foundations of what your life is supposed to be. And I think that there's a lot to be said there for that time period in everybody's life. This book, talked about another time period that is related to Uranus and your chart and your like late thirties and early forties. So it's when you, it's the window with which you can begin to do your great work Mm -hmm. and the mythic undertones of it, at least the way that I've experienced it is it's like in your twenties, you meet the dragon. And then when you get to 40, you slay it. And so that's what I experienced is I had been pursuing a path of music, creativity for 15 years. And then 
my father passed away. The foundations of my family completely crumbled around me. My band fell apart and I was propelled deeply into debt that was forcing me into a capitalist system that I didn't want to be a part of. I got my ass kicked. And even like, <laughs> even that song and the record that it came on, what I released was not the version I wanted to release. Somebody robbed my car and stole my notebooks and my laptop. And all I had was just a demo version of it. So it was like on all of these different fronts, like it was just, I felt like I was under attack and I needed to figure this thing out and get out of a hole. So I didn't go down the path that I wanted to go down and I was full of anxiety and money is a really big face for that mythic anxiety of that dragon that I ended up contending with. And to be now in this stage where that mythic journey talks about of going to your forties, I feel like I'm ready to take on that dragon and not to slay it, but to heal it. Right. Like in the kind of like mythic archetypal Joseph Campbell stuff, like when Star Wars is a very archetypal movie and when you have Luke falls into the pit, he ends up killing that monster. That's what it was in the 80s. But then in the new trilogy, when Rey falls into the pit and she encounters the serpent, she doesn't kill it. She heals it. How cool is that? So I think that as much as it pissed me off to go down the path that I ended up going down, it's a really powerful path for me to have gone down because... What I am doing with this book and what I've been able to do with my career is transmute the anxieties that I have about money, about the systems of media and marketing and turn them, switch their polarities as best as I can in my world into creativity. And that feels like a better calling for me than trying to stay away from the whole thing to go into it and try to raise its frequency is really life affirming. So that's on a mythic level. Then I would say on a smaller level, there's your day-to-day -day anxieties that you encounter where in the book itself, I teach a meditation methodology that I've used as a mystic, as a maker, as a marketer, where I feel an anxiety in my body or just in my imagination. And I try to locate it directionally. Where is it in my inner world and understand it and then say, okay, is there a story here worth creating? Because every anxiety is a calling and that's why it freaks us out. It's, it's a voice in the dark. <laughs> and how do you bring that voice into the light? That's the creative part. And there's mythic levels for your whole life's journey. And there's daily levels. How do I manage today? How do I make today a creative day? What would you say are some false, <clears throat> some current false representations of creativity that we see today? Like feigned creativity. You might be seeing somebody doing the thing, but it's not really creativity. It might not be scratching that, that anxiety itch. Maybe it's creating more anxiety. Yeah. I think that a lot of what we call creativity is actually work. And I think a lot of the creativity that we see under the umbrella of content creator is work. And I would say that if you're only following instructions, doing what somebody else or an algorithm tells you to do, that's not creativity, that's work. 
And I've gotten in some really interesting conversations with people in the mystic space in terms of what they see on digital platforms. Is that actually creativity or not? So they've moved my, my sentiment on that quite a bit as I've considered what they have to say. But work, it's part of practice, right? So it's not that one is good and one is evil. I would say that it's creativity when you are expressing something that is truly coming from the depths of your heart, your subjectivity, your own unique experience. You're accessing the planes of genius, basically, that are beyond what an algorithm could even predict or ask for. And so even in the daily demands of working in marketing and following the instructions of a brief that a brand gives you, or being a content creator and trying to chase the dance or viral trend that everybody's doing right now to, to get a following. Within that, there's always room for a little bit of surprise. And that surprise doesn't come from a logical place. It doesn't come from the head. It comes from the heart. And that is the creative part. I think we're in a time right now where we're really preparing to parse the definition of what is creativity masquerading as work and what is work masquerading as creativity because my whole career in marketing that I had to get dragged into kicking and screaming, I thought that was work, but it's like the most creative thing that I've done because as far as being of service to doing something meaningful in the world, if I was just focused on my own music, I don't know if I would have had the opportunity that I have today to even be in this conversation. I love that. Could you recount what it was that your conversation with the mystics did change about your current understanding of, of that? Yeah, it was a crystal shop trying to figure out their social media strategy. <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And that was at the center of it. It's do we trend chase or do we go full spirit? And that's another thing in terms of a, pr a cognitive shift that I would like for our culture to make is for something to be right, something else doesn't have to be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. You can do both. You can exist fluidly on, on a spectrum between the possibilities of those two poles. Great. Would you say that virality, something going viral is creativity? Like there's something about that thing that millions of people are like, yes, this, and versions of that that have been created before just like less creative, Can, do you think that it's scaled that way in terms of numbers? That what is less creative? Could you clarify that? Yeah. Oh gosh. Like someone creating just in the simplest sense, a, some kind of hack, like on TikTok, how to do your lashes a certain way. Hundreds yeah. of people may put that out there, but there's some person and I'm thinking more like the unknown people, not somebody that already has a lot of followers, but some person creates this one thing that maybe has been done before and then it goes viral. Is that an algorithmic phenomenon or is there something about that person that is infusing a different kind of creativity into that? I think there's something about a person that is infusing a different kind of creativity. So there, there's a few things to pull out here. One is the concept of deviation to the meme right? Like instead of deviation to the mean, it's to the meme in terms of what is the expected take or format or meaning that is the cultural conversation right now. 
And it, that tends to be where a lot of us feel a sense of exhaustion when we're scrolling through the content where everything starts to look homogenous because it's what is trending. But being human, we want to see that fracture and break. We want it to stay interesting. And I'll give another shout out to Robert Persig, who wrote Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. His follow-up book, Lilo, which did not get nearly as much attention, he talks about the idea of dynamic quality versus static quality. And static quality is like everything that is in the middle. Everything is at what you would call like normal in the zeitgeist. And it's where your nervous system can relax, and that's the benefit of it. This is where we all meet. This is the culture, this is the language, the symbols, and everything that we are comfortable in. Dynamic quality is what disrupts or breaks that, right? And it's more on the fringes of reality's experience. Now, in the marketing world, there, there's, a, there's a beautiful and boiling tension between these two ideas because a lot of media and marketing is built off of measurement which is really only getting signal on the adjacent past. So it's all static quality. And that's where a lot of empires are built is on the firm ground of what we know to be true. Art happens in the adjacent possible. It happens in dynamic quality. It happens, that's where virality comes from. And so that's a place that I've been able to play with where because of being now like self-ascribed and announced as a mystic and a maker in this marketing world and at a place like reddit that operates this way catalysts are showing themselves to really be a better predictor at times of the future than the measurements of the past because mm -hmm. these trend lines just get blown to smithereens when a when COVID happens when when somebody skateboards and listens to Fleetwood Mac while drinking cranberry juice. Like it's just a conversation all of a sudden changes in a catalytic kind of way. And that's the sort of virality. And that's the creativity is like, it comes from this place of surprise me. I want to, I just, I want the novelty of the new. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge dopamine hit in that, I think in people's brains. But I also think we're too focused on the brain. The heart skips a beat and it enters a new pattern and a new rhythm. And so then like, I'll say, when you look at like drum circles and context of like improvisational jazz and music or anything, the static qualities, the groove that we're all in on. But when you play every now and then somebody will come in with a new lick or a new rhythm or a new idea. And then the whole system changes around that because the old idea got a little boring and this one is a little bit exciting. So that's how humans operate is in the oscillation between those two poles. Oh, I really like how your brain works. This is great. This is so good. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to role play here for a second. So okay. tuning into a lot of the listeners to the show are, they teach yoga or they're artists or they're doing some kind of social impact work. I would say they're the healer types, right? Yeah. And I'm categorizing people into types, which whatever, that aside. But we're role-playing. Yes. <laughs> then there are people that listen that are coming back to spirit or perhaps yeah. redis rediscovering it for the first time since they were kids and weren't jaded by beliefs and whatnot and dogma. 
if I could speak from the healer's perspective, they have this attunement to the flow, which helps them create their art, which helps them heal, which helps them read energy and all of that. And then they have this task of marketing themselves because they're all business owners in their own way. And then that's when it's, do I use the trending music? I really hate this music. Do I have to post three times a day? Do I need a huge Instagram following? Like then they start taking the courses. All courses are amazing. What's best practices and that can put you in a box. And learning these courses are fantastic so you can understand what kind of box you can break out of. But that's a certain kind of problem, right? Then we have people that are lifelong business people that have tuned into this flow of just in, now moving past the skill set and now into this mastery where they just know instinctually what will be a good profitable move. And so they've broken out of the system and the best practices and they can be creative in that way. And then when they tune into their maker side or their mystic side, they're like, like that meme that I shared with you, the SpongeBob meme. Yeah. Do I pick up tarot? Do I get into astrology? Do I pick up religion? What is this? And they go into these best practices and it's almost like these two people have these same problems, but just in different arenas. And so I did want to talk to you about tarot because one of the ways I access an altered state when I come into any of these arenas, when I'm feeling like stuck, which I think is what you were talking about around this expected take. When I'm feeling really blocked and I don't know what to do next, my go-to is the tarot. Now, I'm no master of the tarot and I read it in my own way, but I was wondering if you could speak to, let's say, the business person, the person who is looking to make marketing decisions. Sorry, if we could speak to the healer type, how can you make marketing decisions, things that feel out of the realm of spirit with something that is as old as the hills, something that they know? As old as the hills. I love that phrase. <laughs> so... To the business person first, I would say, because it's simpler, I would say tarot is analog AI. And then just let them play with that for a little bit. So we'll toss that <laughs> to toy and then we'll talk to the healers now. So for the healers, it is a little bit more nuanced and there's a conversation to be had at different depths. So first and foremost, you can say it's a way to have a dialogue with your unconscious because the mind is, if nothing else, a meaning making machine. And every card in the tarot is abundant with meaning infused into it through the symbols and the architecture of its design. You lay those out on a table in a pattern that has its own design as well. And you're being confronted with a story that is going to be different than the story you've been telling yourself about who you are, where you come from, and where you're going. So you have the opportunity to go through thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis where you can carry into that. Here's what I think is going on. And then let's say it's just random. You get another story that's here's a totally different story about what's going on. And your mind is trying to figure it out, make the meaning. Then you walk away and you've got to, you've got to rectify that. You can't blame the cards. They don't have any skin in the game of your life. They're just cards on a table. So that I think is at a certain level where a lot of people can find some comfort in terms of, yeah, like I look in the mirror every day to make sure my hair is the way that I want it to look like. Why not do the same thing for your mind? And that's basically what tarot is. It's a mirror. At a deeper depth, digging in on that phrase, old as the hills, and the tarot is a profound technology a creative technology, and we don't know how old it is. 
We really don't. It, from our best traces, comes from Egypt through Europe, and we can trace it back to the time following the plague, basically. But these cards, the major arcana, there's signs that it comes from ancient Egypt priesthoods, the Book of Toth, right? Mm -hmm. Deep, deep stuff. This is the history of human experience, not explanation, not dates, not names, not facts, but feelings. That these are the archetypes that you would encounter in your worldly existence for the minor arcana or your cosmic existence in the major arcana. So a study of the tarot is a way to expand your mind and spirit to have a covenant with the collective of humanity that has always been. That's a really powerful practice to just sit with that every day. And even if you don't have a question, to just learn is an expansive process. And then in another layer below that, tarot is a closed system designed by mystics with very precise magic infused into it. And so when you engage in a ritual of laying out tarot cards, you are creating an opening for spirit to come in and speak. And I find that it always does every time. So how can the marketer, if you can role play now, how can the marketer archetype the healer as the marketer now utilize this in a very practical way? What spread would you use? What, ki what kind of question might you ask and what application can be taken from that? A very simple one is card of the day. So we have this tension that we talked about in terms of, are you creating for your heart or are you creating for the algorithm, the mind <laughs> and pulling one card for the day could be a way to receive instructions. If that's what you need from the heart. Mm -hmm. And there's a trick that I chose to do with the book that I'm releasing, which kind of boils down to don't say chakra. Just don't say it. <laughs> Why? It's the operating system. It's the mm. blueprint. But say it in other people's language. Meet them where they're at. So you mm. showed me the queen of swords. I think that a mistake, in my opinion, mistake is a hard word, but something that I wouldn't, that I don't feel called to do is pull a card and let's say it's the queen of swords and then turn to the camera on my phone and tell everybody in my audience, here's what the queen of swords is. Now I've done that sometimes in terms of helping to with the social media on that crystal shop, but what feels truer to me and a better opportunity for this healer that we're talking about trying to market their business is sit with that queen of swords and say, what story does this compel me to tell today? So that's about the mind. That's about precision of thought. It's about the language that you choose. It's the element of air. It's quickness. It's adeptness. It's skill. It's flourishes. So for a yoga practice right away, there's think about your transitions rather than your asanas, right? Think about how your practice engages with the air. And the gears can start turning in terms of something that you might want to say in the key of the queen of swords. Then cross-reference that with how does the algorithm want to receive it today? Is this a 15-second video or is it a 30-second video? 
is it my face at the camera or is it something else on screen? And that's the dialogue, right? That's the heart and mind speaking together. The heart is the tarot, the mind is the algorithm and the human is in between. That's where your voice is. Wow. You make, you make a basic workday sound very sacred and special. That's so nice. Should be. You're very passionate about this. Why does this matter so much to you? Because I'm upset with the way the world is. Oh, tell me more about that. (laughs) We don't have to get that weird, but. (laughs) Yeah, I, I believe that we're headed towards a beautiful place, but I believe that we're stumbling on the way and getting bruised and bloody and we don't have to. So I look at the state of discourse and culture and I see how it is part of a process of moving past polarization and towards more of a fluid manner of thought from binaries to quantum sort of experience. But it doesn't have to be so angry. And I also think that this idea, the old trope of leaving the rat race to go to the ashram is less interesting to me than bringing the ashram to the rat race. Because what about all these people that are in the rat race? What do we do about them? Where's the compassion for that suffering? And there's a lot of suffering. So that is why I care. Yeah, your mission here is very noble and it makes a lot of sense because I've thought about this often, about the person that shaves their head and moves to Costa Rica to live within nature And there is a lot of value in prayer just for prayer's sake. I do believe that there are people that have been designed and placed here to join a monastery and to pray, maybe not even communicate with anybody else ever, but just to quietly pray for the wellness of the world. I don't think that's everyone though. And so I do wonder if there's a bit of selfishness or a giving up, like leaving the, what we, what is a bit of a normal world behind to go back to this easier state. So I've thought, I think about that all the time. The reason why I moved, I was actually in LA last year and I was in Costa Rica for a while before then. And I was thinking to myself, I could stay here. But as I continue to do my work and shadow work and podcast production and to work with people that were living in New York and in LA, I started to be able to relate less. And I realized that I have to go back. I have to go back into the town off of the mountaintop so that I can realize what's even happening still. And that to me feels more purposeful than living the natural life that I crave. With your book, are you speaking to the maker marketer and maker marketer and mystic people as a group, or do you believe that's everyone? I believe it's everyone. I'm trying to create a big tent basically. And I, when I was young and I grew up in a very mystical community. I just remember thinking from an early age, I was like, these hippies need better graphic design. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, (laughs) my, my parents were deadheads and tie dye is like incredible. (laughs) Right. But like the posters for these events and whatnot, and the way that they were like delivered to the world, just there, there was something that was like, this could be more effective, couldn't it? And then on the other side, as far as marketers go, there's all these buzzwords in terms of like brand purpose and empathy. 
empathy. I was like, okay, do you really want to talk about empathy? Are we really going to go to where that word takes us? And I think that there is a deep desire to have meaning in these places of the human experience that have been hollowed out from their meaning. So I think that there's like a force of nature that wants to put that meaning back in. Great. So there's like a nice exchange there between the mystics and the marketers and the makers because the creatives, like they're the ones, there's a whole industry, creative strategists, like they're the ones that put together art directors. I'll add those two, like they make good graphic design. They make compelling 30 second vignettes that are Super Bowl commercials. They have a whole slew of strategies to move people emotionally. What if you put meaning on one side of that and just a direction on the other in terms of all of this technology, all of these things that we've created, all of the capabilities that we have, like we can do it, but where do we point it and how do we decide which way is north? So as you're bringing these mystical teachings into the corporate world, into big business, how is it being received? Yeah, good question. I was really scared. There's a burn the witch mentality that I carry deep in my psyche. Maybe that comes from... <laughs> maybe that comes... <laughs> Maybe that comes from growing up in Massachusetts and the whole Salem thing that we have there. And I had a lot of fear. I have to give a lot of credit to Reddit as a company for pulling it out of me, mm. honestly. Yeah. So in the first year that we were there, we had these like camp offsites in a small company. And I remember there was a guitar there. And we're just playing a bunch of like silly songs for a while. And then it got to be like two in the morning or whatnot. And people were going to bed. And I was there with a very small group of people that have continued to be very important in my life. And they were just like, hey, play some songs. And I don't really know other people's songs because on one level, just a little too self-involved. And <laughs> <laughs> on another, that's I'm a little bit more attuned towards that expression from the heart than from like the mind, right? It's the following instructions of playing somebody else's song. I, I legitimately struggle with that. And I played every one of my songs, every one of them. And I felt so deeply seen and heard. It wasn't perfect. My voice wasn't great, but it was like, I was like depositing them in this community that had now become such a major part of my life. And then the next year happens and we do that camp offsite again. A lot of things have changed. I've really stepped into this marketing persona and there was a guitar again and I had become a manager of people. And a couple of them were like, oh, we heard you played some songs last year. Can you play them again? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I picked up the guitar and I was playing it halfway through. I forgot the lyrics to my own song. And I put the guitar down and my heart broke a little bit. I was like, wow. What happened? The next year I was like, all right, I'm not going to bring a guitar to the camp because something has changed in me. And I had embarked on really revisiting tarot, which had been with me for a while. So I brought that as the artifact. Cause that was the prompt that the company culture gave was like, bring your whole self as the idea. And I ended up just sitting on a table in a field and I was just turning over some cards to actually try to figure out why I forgot the lyrics to my own song and what that mm -hmm. meant. And as I'm pulling these cards over, like I see like a shadow 
And then I look up and there's a person like, oh, are you doing tarot? Can you do me? And I was like, yeah, okay. Next thing I know, like a full line across the whole lawn forms and I'm doing tarot for three hours. Every Almost everybody at the company, leadership on down. And it was fully embraced. And I, in that moment, made a flip from doing tarot readings for myself to doing them for other people. And it was wholly embraced. And it was also the proof was in the pudding. There was something that I carried in the way that I was doing that tarot that moved people. And I was really encouraged to do more. So I really started to dig in deeper and deeper. And I started studying with psychics and made this a major part of my identity. Mm -hmm. And the company understood that the tarot was a thing, but I was going like full mystic on, on nights and weekends. And I was able to slowly bring that in. When 2020 happened, there was a lot of anxiety. And I had been reserving time on my calendar for meditations for myself. And my calendar is open. Everybody can see what I'm doing. So somebody raised my hand for me. It was a really big gift that person gave me. And they said, Will should lead meditations while we're trying to figure out what is happening mm -hmm. to the world. And that was a similar moment where I took a flip from, I made a flip from doing meditation sessions just for myself to leading other people into it. And in both of those places, it was the community of Reddit as a company that pulled it out of me and empowered me to share what it is that I have to offer. And I answered that call. Generally speaking, that's always how I operate. I don't try to inject my sense of shamanism into anybody else's life or world. But if people ask me to do tarot readings or lead meditation or smudge their space or read their energy or perform some level of a healing ceremony, I respond to that call. And I have far more capabilities than I telegraph because I think it's a better way to be of service is to just do it when people ask and not try to force it upon anybody. I have yet to experience a heavy dose of shame or any sort of burn the witch aspect to this side of myself. We'll see. That's really beautiful. It's a very patient way to be because in this, just the general culture of needing to be out there or thinking you need to be out there and needing to have the one-on-one -on -one sales calls and the workshops and the, all the things, otherwise you get left behind. If you guys check out Will's Instagram, he has like no followers. Actually, all the guests that I have on my show have no followers. That's why it's really hard to grow this thing because I actually want to talk to people that have super, super interesting things to do that focus on their craft and often it's not usually to gain followers, <laughs> but the amount of attention that you've gotten from people that are remarkable, people that know your work that I know are, they are remarkable people and the amount of impact that waiting for the invitation can have versus forcing your invitation on other people is fantastic. Yeah. There was, there was something recently that I was watching. There was like, like a town hall that Charles Eisenstein had with his community and I was watching that. And one of the themes that came up was the difference between a community and an audience. And they really held it to him. And they said, are you building a community or an audience? 
and he conceded that what he's building is an audience. These are people that are tuning in and listening to his messages. And I think he's such an eloquent thinker and speaker and is has the courage to sit in real time and negotiate something with a challenge like that. And in doing so, he uh, then parsed the difference between making a change on the surface of the waters or influencing a deeper current underneath. And so I think that large social media followings, audiences are a way to create movement on the surface of the water. Engineering change with the deeper currents underneath does not happen on social media. It doesn't. And when it's really happening, nobody really knows that you're doing it, but I know what I've done. Okay. I have two last questions. The first one being about your book, how does it read? Is it an instructional type of book? Is it a contemplative book? What can people expect as they go through it? Cool. Great question. Okay. I am ready to say that I'm proud of this book. I think that it is the best I could possibly do right now. And it's not because it's super sophisticated and uses big words and predicts the future, whatever. It's not thought leadership. That's not like what makes it something that I'm proud of. I constructed it in a way that it can meet people at whatever level they're at. Even a child, the first eight or so pages of the book are just symbols. And it asks, where does creativity come from? And it shows a point, becoming a vision, becoming a compass, becoming a star, becoming a journey, becoming a lesson. That's it. If that's all somebody takes away from the book is their meditation, their contemplation of those symbols, then that's a success. If all somebody takes away from the book is contemplating the question, which way is north on the cover, that's a success. Because the book even puts it to the reader. So do you know which way is north right now? If you don't, why? That's worth asking. Then the structure of the book is based upon the meditation method that I've been teaching. It's the seven directions. What is in front of you? What is behind you? What do you receive to your left? What do you give to your right? What do you rest upon underneath you? What shines upon you above and what's in your heart? Without even reading the chapters, that system, that structure is incredibly powerful. And it's a system for meditation. It's a system for creative ideation. It's, it's an oracle if you want to use it that way. And then within each of those chapters, I write, what is the point of this direction? What is the vision of this direction? What is the compass, which is a meditation practice for this direction, et cetera, et cetera. And the writing within that, we'll see. Some people might think it's good. Some people might think it's shit. <laughs> That's up to them to decide. But even before getting to the point of asking that question, I've put so much thought into its construction that there, I believe, should be something for people to receive, even if they think that the opinions that I place on that scaffolding are idiotic. <laughs> but I don't think that they're idiotic. I think that they're really gorgeous stories that interconnect with each other in ways that speak in whispers. 
that won't necessarily hit people right away, but the connections between things are where the magic comes out. And my unconscious was co-creating with me and there were synchronicities in the writing that like, I'm not smart enough to do half the things that happened in this book. They just happened. And it was a co-creation with heart, mind, and spirit. You know this, I don't need to say this, but the consideration that this might seem idiotic I think is really important because if it didn't, if you didn't have that hint of that, it's probably been written already in old news. So yeah. I think that's a really good sign. Does the title imply that we are, that North is the way to go? Because as you're talking through these directions, it had me thinking about the idiom, where's your North star? And I hadn't really considered what that really meant. I guess that, what does that mean to- yeah. Talk about being confronted with your biases. I was just in Australia last week and I was like, which way is North? Shit. <laughs> they don't care the same way that we do. I got that wrong. Like that this is a totally different implication down here. And even just to riff on that really briefly, I got to look at Alpha Centauri for the first time in my life. I love space. And Alpha Centauri has Proxima B, which is the closest habitable planet to Earth. And I got to look at that. So that's like a star in the sky that is so full of meaning, right? And in some ways, it's a North Star, because if we're going to live that sci-fi dream of becoming a interstellar species, we're going to Alpha Centauri. That is North. That's the way to go. It was really written from the idea that the North Star changes, that every 20, every 12,000 years or so, it switches. It goes between Vega and Polaris. The tilt of the earth changes. And that is such a heavy idea that if even which way is north is something that changes, that everything that's stacked on top of that also can be changed. And it's also a way into different cultures. So mm -hmm. where I've done the most learning and have made the most mistakes and had the most corrections in the past is in learning about other cultures. And there's a big part of the book that explores what I've learned about the morning star in other cultures, which is Sirius, the, the Sirius star system, binary stars that orbit around each other. There's a lot of belief structures around that. So it's like a spiritual North Star mm -hmm. for a lot of different cultures. And then there's the idea that the magnetic pole might change and North might become South. And so then like question of which way is North it's a similar question like what fills the gap like it doesn't present an immediate answer the point is in the asking oh beautiful yes i love that katie you're amazing okay <laughs> my last ask from you is would you be able to do a card of the day for us tap into our future timeline for everybody listening and... sure do you want it from the c deck that i use for high performing executives or do you want it from the kind of softer emotional deck that I use for people asking mm. relational questions. I feel like the softer one felt right. Okay, let's do it. Today we have the six of pentacles, which ironically is the one that is about harmony and money and manifestation. <laughs> <laughs> is it irony though? <laughs> no, it's fitting. It's synchronistic, right? So there's a lot of levels to read that, right? Sometimes in a reading, I'll just have people look at the picture and they'll just be like, what comes up for you? And they just need somebody to play the role of tarot reader behind the curtain to, for them to just have a conversation with themselves. But oftentimes I'll go deeper underneath. Six is the number of harmony. 
in sacred geometry, the seed of life, these sort of six circles that are centered around each other. And so it's where things are in balance. And actually what's beautiful here is it has this, the scales on it, which are right behind you. Yeah. Yeah. And so what comes out of harmony is discernment. If you are keen enough to keep it, because a balance in manifestation is not about having, but it's about being clear on how to weigh things against each other. There's a symmetry on six different sides. You know, thinking about this theme here of polarity and moving past polarized thinking. What if instead of thinking about right versus wrong, we had six different things to look between to figure out what is harmony? That's a good meditation for today. Thank you so much for joining me from this conversation. You're a gem, really. Like, it's been great to chat with you. As are you. This has been excellent. And I'm sure this podcast is going to grow and everything that you're doing. I'm so excited for your documentary. It looks incredible. When's the release date on that again? What's, I, you probably say it all the time, but let's say it for anybody listening right now again, because why not? I am saying it all the time because it's always moving back later and later, <laughs> as these things do. <laughs> we don't have a release date yet. We're hoping October 2023. So we had a miracle come in the other day. We've partnered with a big Hollywood director, Rich Thorne, who has, he's been part of the Marvel series, Star Trek. Like he's been in the industry forever. And he heard our message. I gave the worst pitch of my life, just met him in like the weirdest way. I wasn't ready. It was so early on. And we reconnected and he's going to re-edit the whole thing. He's, he was the main editor for Kingdom of Jerusalem, okay. Guy Ritchie. And he was like, Guy Ritchie had the same problem you guys do have. <laughs> the director's cut, amazing, but it needs to be like reordered and that reordering will change everything. So he's, I'm going to tackle this and oh my God, thank you. So he's working on it now. And that was amazing. Like huge win there. Yeah. That's a great example of work that is actually creativity. So I know that phase, it's a really tough phase. That's where those symbols that kick off my book came from is I had to sit with, oh, I have to reorder this whole thing. What do I do? And something incredibly beautiful and maybe the best contribution from the whole thing came out of that phase. So I, for my part, know how that part of the process feels. And it's a good one. It's a very creative one, even though it's a lot of work. Oh, it's so much work, but it is effortless in a way. I love it. So yeah. flowy. Tell me where we can find your book. Yeah, I'll see you in October. My book comes out October 10th, 2023, and it's being distributed through Penguin under the Matt Holt Books imprint. And it's everywhere you can buy books. Does authors a great solid if you go to your bookstore and you ask for it because mm. then they start to carry it. And that's how bestsellers become bestsellers. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a good I'm learning all the tricks. See, marketing, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's right? Part of the process. <laughs> Are you doing book signings, any kind of events? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. I got to figure out what feels right to me. And my instincts aren't always correct in terms of what I should or should not do. I don't know how to approach a book signing in a way that feels like consistent with how I want to present in the world. But maybe that's my ego getting in the way of my own ego in the way of what needs to actually get done. So I don't know. I think that I want to... I want to, I want to go to a lot of bookstores and I want to do something and I want to connect with anybody that has an experience with the book. Like the message that you sent me, 
the messages like that that I get from what fills the gap that still trickle in from time to time, that's what inspired me to make this book. I was like, I want to, I want more of that. I want to do that bigger and better. So I don't know. I'll be in the, I'll be in the world somehow. I haven't just, I just don't know yet. Cool. Pre-ordering. People can pre-order now though. Yeah. Yeah. That's also really helpful for authors. Okay. So if anybody feels called to pre-order, we're still a ways away. Like six months is a long time to wait for a book, but the pre-order links are up. If you search which way is north, will Katie, the penguin listing will take you to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the bookstores. Beautiful. All right. I'm going to let you go now, even though I want to talk to you all day. Thank you so much for coming on. And I look forward to seeing you at your book thing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll call it. <laughs> Yeah, something's going to happen here. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be designed well, though. I know that. The flyers will be amazing. I, everything's TBD. <laughs> I just ordered them, actually. Yeah. Oh. So they're, they just say which way is north, and they're on seed paper that plants wildflowers. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Will. Thank you.